Good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of Galatians. We're going to continue our sermon series going verse by verse through this book. Today we're going to pick up in verse 19. And I remind us every week that this is God's word. And that it's given to his people that we might hear it and receive it by faith. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Let's pray. Oh, our Heavenly Father, we're gathered here this morning to worship you. Lord, we are gathered here to sing and pray, to hear you, to hear the gospel of good news, to be reminded that you conquer all enemies, that you have done all that is necessary to rescue us from the world, from the devil and his minions, and from ourselves. So Lord, give us eyes to see the truth of your word. Give us ears that hear the authority in your voice as you speak to us. And give us hearts that are attuned to you and your purposes, and your ways, that we might live in love, refreshed in the goodness of your gospel, the one of grace. Would you do it in the name of Jesus, our Redeemer and Savior, and all God's people agree. Amen. You ever have one of those mornings where everything just can't work? If you grew up in my family, my household, you will know that I have one giant steaming hot pet peeve. When things don't work. So you can imagine I tend to face anger or anger uh, on occasion. And I do so 
because I live under the delusion that everything should maintain itself, that nothing should ever deteriorate or break, that if you buy it once, that's all you should ever have to do. Thought I'd get more amens there. (laughs) And so when things don't go well, it is easy for me to look at circumstances and object. Object to my suffering, object to the difficulty that whatever it is causes me. And often, I forget that the gospel leads us to trust. Trust in what we cannot see yet. Trust to believe that while things deteriorate and break now, there will come a day when they will no longer. In fact, I don't like admitting it, But sometimes the difficulties of life squeeze me in such a way that I must look to Christ. That I must remember the gospel. And in that way, these sufferings, these difficulties, these frustrations and angers, even in their unrighteousness, are used by God to point me Back to him, back to Christ, back to the sufficiency and wonder and beauty of God with us. Sometimes I think the Christmas season should extra be trouble free. Glad to know I'm not the only one. But there's a sweet and bitter reality. When we come to the limitations of other things, when we come to the limitations of our own capacities, to the sorrow and frustration of life just not working perfectly. And as I was off to do with my own kids, I would say to them, you have not finished that sentence yet. Because you have not added the word that governs the rest. Yet. Yet. Pain, sorrow, evil, suffering, and all the rest are temporary. So as we close the year of 2023 and we gaze upon the promise and prospects of 2024... Let us do it agreeing that there is joy ahead and that there is trouble ahead and that because of Christ, neither should replace Christ. In our pursuit of Christ, sometimes we will experience great joy sometimes great sorrow and trial. But if our pursuit is one of joy, exclusively or primarily comfort, it's a terrible God. The gospel is better. 
So let us remember again, what is this gospel that we speak of? It is the gospel of grace and freedom. It's the theme of the entire letter that we are reading. And the gospel is not about what we do for God. The gospel is about what God in Christ has done for us. So, I'm grateful for the week off, but I am ready and eager to dive back in. So let's remember where we left off. We left off discussing chronological primacy. This is the reality that the promise given to Abraham predates the law given to Moses by four centuries. So the law, in principle, is secondary to the promise because the promise came first. In other words, the promise given to Abraham and the law given to Moses are not on equal terms because, as Paul's arguing, the law cannot replace the promise because the promise itself has priority. The law, therefore, is subordinate to the promise because the promise was given first. Let's remember the thunder of Dr. Riken's quote. I'm going to give it to us again. If the law had been necessary for salvation, it would have come too late to do Abraham any good. This is part of what we mean when we say Abraham had been justified by faith long before the law of Moses was ever introduced. In other words, God gave grace to Abraham long before, way before he gave Moses the law. And that's where we pick up today. We pick up with the necessary question that follows. Why then does God give us the law? If the promise is better, if the promise is prior, prior, and has priority, therefore, then why the law? Why bother with the law? If we already have grace, why would we then need or want the law to be given to Moses? And the answer Paul gives is an introductory answer, but it's also a summary of elements. Watch how this unfolds. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. What purpose does the law serve? The law reveals sin. It shows us the sinfulness of Sin. It allows us to recognize something that otherwise our hearts would know and our minds would not understand. When he says here that it was added because of transgressions, this is where Calvin, the great John Calvin, identifies the first use of the law. Now, let's be clear about a couple of things. One, there are lots 
of uses of the law. But Calvin identifies three that are primary. And so if you're to read the Institutes or you read his sermons, you will see him presenting three uses of the law. And these are the primary ones. The first is the one that Paul's talking about right here. And that is to reveal sin. The second use of the law is to restrain evil or to act as a deterrent of sin. And then the third use, the one we get to much later in chapter 5, is to show believers how to grow in their sanctification. And otherwise, how do we live out this Christian life? Once justified, is the law then no good to us? Calvin argues no, as Paul will argue no. The law can serve the believer. But let's remember, Paul's spent a long time now proving that the law can't save. That the law can't give the life because the law requires perfect obedience, which none here can offer. So when Paul writes here in the second section of verse 19, that it's added because of transgression, this is the first use of the law. But one of the things that's interesting when we consider the context of when this is being written and to whom it is opposing, it is opposing the people who would use the law as the pathway to salvation. In other words, they're using the law as a way of life in order to get justified later. Yahweh does not give the law to decrease transgression. This is an important piece, y'all. It's easy to overlook. He doesn't give it to decrease transgression. In other words, if you think that what you do is what gives you favor in God's eyes, then your goal will be to live out the law more and more and more. And you are likely to think to yourself... I'm sinning less. As if the law shows you how to sin less as a primary purpose. Which it's not. The law is given, in fact in Romans, Paul actually says the law is given to increase trespasses. And you're like, wait, what? And it's to help us understand two elements. The first, we always want what we can't have. Ask two children and one toy how that works. Ask two children and ten toys that nothing has changed. You want the one you can't have or you don't have. That is a way in which or a sense in which the law increases trespass. The other is awareness, of course. 
the more obvious. The law shows us that we can't and don't and aren't obeying perfectly the standard that God has set. So when we think of the word transgression, it's important for us to understand that transgression is the breaking of a specific law. And the more laws that get specified, the more laws you will break according to his holy standard. In other words, the law exposes sin for what it really is, a violation of God's holy standards. Listen to Romans 5.20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Increase it, not decrease it, not remove it, not remove its penalties, not take away its prohibitions. The law serves the function of increasing the trespass. He does not give us the law to reveal the pathway to being justified. He gave us the law specifically to illuminate the evil power of sin. That's what Paul means here when he says it was added because of transgressions. And then he continues. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise, that's Abraham, had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Let's deal with the intermediary part there first. When we see the law, we should recognize its inferiority. The law is inferior to the promise. That's what Paul's saying here at the end in this fourth section of verse 19. That it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. In other words, the law given to Moses came by way of indirect revelation. This is not normally the way we talk about it when we read Exodus. But it is the way that the scripture talks about it consistently. I don't have time for it today, but if you want to press in and study this more and more, I would encourage you to go to Acts chapter 7, verse 53. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, Psalm 68, verse 17, and Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. And what you will see is that hosts of angels are present in the giving of the law in such a way that the scripture reflects it as having been given indirectly. It is an indirect revelation. Compared to what we saw in verse 18, that God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Notice what Paul's contrasting here is that the promise given to Abraham was a direct revelation. So then we ask the question, why is the law then required to have a mediator? Why must it be indirect? Why can it not be direct? And the answer 
Because sinners can't directly come into Yahweh's presence. That the law is the barrier. No. The law illuminates the barrier between the sinner and God. So listen to how Stephen Neal says this in a commentary from 1958. He says this, he says, The promise came to Abraham firsthand from God, and the law comes to the people thirdhand. It goes from God through the angels to Moses, who's the mediator, to the people. The people do not receive it directly. Does that make sense? From God to angels to Moses to the people. In other words, the law here is inferior because of its separation in both how it was given and why it was given. Another way in which the law is inferior is because it's limited. The law is inferior to the promise because it is limited. We're going to look at two ways it's limited. The first deals with time. The law is limited in that it's temporary. It governs the time from Moses till who? Christ, the offspring that was promised to Abraham. In other words, the law doesn't replace the promise. It serves the purpose of the promise, which is to show us, to teach us, to help us, to discipline us, to recognize the coming Christ. In other words, the temporary nature of the law is part of why it's inferior. This is what's happening in the second part of verse 19. 19b, quote, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So it's temporary in nature. So if you think of the plan of redemption as a whole, from the Garden of Eden to the glories of the eternal heavens, the law does not occupy the entire timeline. It has a subset that it has been given and is delegated to. That's the way Paul is arguing this. So the law is temporary in this usage of revealing sin that we might see, recognize, and grab hold of Christ. And we've talked about this before, but it's worth repeating here. The law is inferior because it's limited in function as well. The law is limited because it cannot give life. In other words, we've said before, the law cannot bless us. All the law of God can do is curse sinners because we fail its demands. We fail and fall short of its standards. So because the way of the law requires perfect obedience, the law proves to us that we're sinners. 
but it has no power, hence it's limited, to make sinners right with God. So when we talk about the law, why was it given? Well, it's given in this sense to reveal to us our need for Christ. And it comes by way of a mediator. All right. So then if we put all these pieces together, why then the law? Well, the law is given to increase transgressions for a limited time until the promise had been made and fulfilled in Christ and it was given by an intermediary. Now, don't get it wrong. Verse 20, an intermediary implies more than one God. But God is one. So Christ, as the true fulfillment and promise of mediation between God and man, don't get it confused that that would then make Jesus Christ another God. See, Paul's trying to protect Trinitarian understanding here. God is one. Three persons. One being, one substance, one God. So then, if verse 19 and 20 are true, many people would then say, so then the law and the promise contradict each other. If the law represents life by obedience, and the promise represents life by faith in grace, I mean grace through faith, then aren't they contradictory? <laughs> no. Certainly not. Paul's really strong here, y'all. He's really loud here. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is the law somehow a new obstacle that God must overcome? Is it really serve no purpose? Is it useless? No, we just talked about its great purpose. At least one of them with the promise of others. The law is not contradictory to the promises of God. Why? Well, here's your answer. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture, and I think here we should say the law, imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Why does this matter? It matters because God is deliberately and wonderfully unfolding this plan of redemption. He's teaching us how this works and why every element is necessary. I know that some of this could be boring or sound repetitive, and that's okay. Much of life can be boring or repetitive. 
But this is precious because it is so easily lost, so easily forgotten, so easily misunderstood. The law is not contrary because it plays a public role in this unfolding plan of redemption. It offers to, it offers to us something extremely valuable. Awareness. Ignorance is not always sinful. It's just the lack of understanding. But deliberate ignorance, plugging your ears and filling the world with sounds while your, your mom is telling you to stop and to listen is sinful, <laughs> right? If you're just like, I don't want to know anymore, don't tell anymore, please, 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 don't tell anymore. Then I'm willfully being disobedient and disrespectful and so much more. That's why we press in. Because we want to know how this glorious grace functions. How this Christian life is designed to work. The law points to the promise. The law says, sinner, find rescue. Prisoner, you're being held for prosecution. In fact, that's what the law is designed to do. It's not a contradiction. It's a complement to the purpose of redemption, to the purpose of the promise. In fact, the law, when understood, serves the promise. And not just for a little while. The believer is blessed by the law in our adoration of the one who upholds it. And offers us its blessings without merit, contrary to our merit. How does the law lead us to Christ? It leads us to Christ by revealing sin to us. The law compels us then to look for a Savior, but not just any Savior. The Savior who has come. The Savior who's made himself known. The Savior who frees us from the tyranny of sin and sorrow and self. The law may be inferior to the promise, but it is not contradictory to the promise. The law points to the promise. And by pointing out our need for Christ... The law compels us to look for a Savior. And when we believe we're united to Christ, and being united to Christ, all of the blessings promised to Abraham are given to us as well. Paul then gives us two metaphors that we might grasp his point here. The first metaphor is one of prison and prisoner, and the other is child and <laughs> pedagogue, which I know you use that word regularly. 
What is a pedagogue? Well, I'm going to give you John Stott's answer to that question. We're going to do the second metaphor first. A pedagogue. What we have here translated... Guardian, thank you. Whew. Two metaphors, prison and pedagogue, both used as guardian. So the first here is pedagogue. This is what John Stott says. He says it's a slave appointed to serve as a child's protector. From age six until late adolescence, a child was under constant care and supervision. The pedagogue was part babysitter and part chaperone. Since he was in charge of discipline, the pedagogue was also part probation officer. Ancient drawings usually depict him holding a rod or cane to administer corporal punishment. So if you were wealthy enough, in these Greek times, you would have a specific slave caring for and doling out punishment and offering protection. Another way of understanding this, chaperone. You guys like going on a trip and having a chaperone? Chaperones are almost never popular, right? Why? Yeah, they enforce rules that we might think we don't want to live up to or come under. So chaperones are very rarely popular, but they're often, dare I say always, necessary for the purpose of protection and punishment. The pedagogue was not an educator or a teacher in an academic sense. This is why when some English translations translate this, they don't use guardian, they call him a schoolmaster. He's not that, that's a misnomer. And in fact, if you trace that misnomer out, you'll see that pedagogy is dealing with the aptitude or the purpose of learning, where it's being used as a schoolmaster which is not the real essence of what's happening here. It's not that there's no tutoring. Discipline requires tutoring, yes? Because you're, you're learning and living out, doing something that you have to train to do. You can't do it already. That's why you need the instruction. That's why you need the training. But the instruction here is moral. These men were tasked with shaping the ethics of the child that they were placed over. But again, it's a temporary relationship. This guardianship is temporary. Because at some point, this child will literally age out of that relationship. And if the pedagogue has done his job well, then the life, 
the child has thereafter is much the better for it. In other words, God uses the law to put us under tutors until Christ should make us sons. And that's where we're going to go when we pick up next time. But what about the prison? Well, the warden in this case holds we sinners captive. In other words, the law imprisons us. But it's not just giving out a punishment for our transgressions. And we know this well, actually, in our culture. There's a whole element of law and a whole element in the criminal life and world of something called protective custody. In fact, this is lived out in the Apostle Paul's life. There's a moment where his enemies come to try and kill Paul. And when the Romans hear about that plan and plot, they double the guards so that Paul will actually make it to Caesar as his right as a citizen to appeal there. So Paul is being held prisoner under the charges of the law, but the function of that is not just punishment. It's also protection. Listen to how Paul is arguing this out. Verse 21. So the law then is not contrary to the promises of God? Of course it's not contrary. Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture, the law, imprisoned everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 23. Now... Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. In other words, the law in this first use is temporary. But that doesn't mean it's purposeless. In other words, God uses the law to shut us up in prison until Christ would come and set us free. The law is the warden until Christ takes our punishment and gives us his freedom by way of obedience. Not ours, his. So the law is then both warden and tutor, pedagogue. The law does this for Israel as a nation. The Jews held captive under the law until the promised Messiah would come. The son of David, the brother of Moses, all promised. Fact, 
The promise is bigger than just Abraham, isn't it? It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. The promise of salvation by way of death. Yeah, all the way back to the beginning. But the law does not just do this for Israel. This is not just a historical mercy of the law. It also happens to us and in us personally. The law holds us captive until Christ sets us free. The law is our guardian until we are aged out by being given faith, granted repentance. And then in that faith-filled, repentant-filled moment, we're united to Christ. And in our union with Christ, we receive all his blessings. And he credits us. And in so doing, bears our curses. The law is not just something in Israel's past. My prayer for every kid who grows up in this church, my prayer for every person who walks through the door, is that the law would hold you captive until Christ sets you free. It's not just a historical gift. It's also a personal gift. Well, that's all great, Pastor, and I'm interested, and your time's running out, so how does that relate to me? What does that have to say to me right now? If it's personal, if this gospel is personal, then by way of application, and this is certainly not the only one, but it is a necessary one, I argue that the theological witness of this text calls us cowards because we are often unwilling to call sin, sin. In our silence, we deny the purpose of the law, which is to imprison, to guard, until Christ would be revealed. So I ask you, Christian, do you believe that Paul is right? Do you believe that Paul is here, trustworthy, trying to help us understand that while the law of God is inferior to the promise, it does serve the purpose of the promise. When we are unwilling to tell our neighbors, our classmates, our coworkers, and dare I say, our students, that sin is sin, that there are limits to human flourishing, and that there are things that poison societies, that poison people, that destroy and don't give. The law is powerless to give life, but it is not purposeless in how God brings life. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would continue to clarify and teach us. God, we ask that you would continue to show us the importance of your word, the complete trustworthiness of your scripture. Lord, we also pray that you would convict us 
of the very sin the law explains. That you would convict us inwardly of our sin and misery in seeking to find freedom from somewhere else. From failing to call a spade a spade. Lord, may we do so in graciousness and in love, in kindness and not for our own sense of superiority. Protect us from any sense of superiority. Because, Lord, we agree with Brendan Manning that we are beggars, freed to show other beggars where bread has come and upon which we are to feast. Come, O Lord, pour out your Spirit upon us and lead us to love what you love, to hate what you hate, and to do so in full reliance, dependence, and trust that you are true and that we have no way to earn our way into right standing with you. So Lord, give us beauty and wonder in the gospel again and remind us that this life is temporary and the truest life that you give everlasting. Would you do this in the name of Jesus, our redeemer, our sanctifier, our everything. And all God's people agree.